<sighs> I don't know how many of you have spent the last 30 years or so as Braves fans. You know, there's a whole, uh, there's a whole cal- uh, group of us who grew up, and the Braves were on TBS, so we could watch every game. And uh, when the Braves won this week, several of us who had grown up together couldn't help but remember the people who came before us, who gave us a love of the game and gave us a love of that team. My childhood was spent going and visiting my grandparents, and the only time I was ever allowed to stay up late was when I was watching the Braves game with Granddaddy. And then he would forget to turn the TV off. I slept in the den where the TV was, and he'd forget to turn the TV off. And it seemed like after every late Braves game, one of Kenny Rogers' Gambler's movies came on. And so in my head, the Braves and Granddaddy and Love and Kenny Rogers are all mixed up together. Thank you all for that. So today we're going to talk about joy. Actually, we're going to start a series today that we're going to, that's going to take us through to Thanksgiving on the satisfied soul um, and on finding contentment. You know, there's a lot of discontent uh, in the world these days. People are always striving to get one over uh, another person, to, to build, to grasp, to, to get better. You know, things are always pitched to us, sold to us as being better, right? Right? Hey, you got to get a new microwave because the, the new microwave is better than your old one. You, you've got to get a, a new driver because the new driver is better than your old one. It doesn't matter that you're not even living into the potential of the driver that you have. The new one's better. You know, things these days are designed to break. Designed obsolescence. They're designed to break so that we'll buy the next bigger and better thing. A couple of weeks ago, um, I don't entirely know what happened, but my Apple Watch jumped off my wrist and fell to the ground and kind of went, blue. And so it forced me to, to pull out this watch, which is the watch that Audrey gave me when we got married and here's the thing, now I don't want to drop it, I don't want to break the crystal on the face of this, but, but guess what? It's, it's working. My mother has my great-grandfather's pocket watch that, that he had to buy and carry because he was a conductor for the railroad, and, and he has it, and, and the pocket watch still works. Take your, take your Apple watch and stick it in a cabinet for a hundred years and come back and see if it works. You know, the, the sort of grand theme of our world these days is consumerism. You know, we aren't seen as people. We aren't even seen as customers. We're seen as consumers. To consume and to consume and to consume. 
And we're told over and over and over again by ads on TV and by shows and by pop culture to find our value in consuming. There's a lot of discontent. Or think about the the anger that has marked our uh, political and civil life for the last several years. There's a lot of discontent there, right? This idea that somebody somewhere might be getting something that either A, they don't deserve, or B, that I don't have. And so that's going to make me jealous, and I'm going to get out in the streets, and I'm going to protest, and I'm going to scream, and I'm going to yell, and I'm going to light things on fire, and I'm going to storm the Capitol, or I'm going to tear a statue down. Because of discontent. And so as we, as we entered into the season of Thanksgiving this year, this, this, this month of November, looking toward that Thursday where we will gather with our family and eat too much food and watch the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and spend time with one another, I wanted us to think about what it takes for us to be satisfied for us to be content. Because I believe that true thanksgiving can only come when we are satisfied. You know, we have this this civic holiday, and yes, it has religious roots, but it exists because the federal government says that it exists. And, And we've got this holiday, but there aren't any thanksgiving songs. There's one that Audrey has recently introduced me to. There are no Thanksgiving movies, except I think there's a Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special, but how many times have you seen that in your life versus the Christmas special? Think about it. We just came out of the season of Halloween. How many Halloween movies are there? We're heading into Christmas. How many Christmas movies are there? Apparently an infinite number if you work in my office with Trish, who has the Hallmark Channel on this time of year. I mean, they're all the same movie, but they've, but they've got different names and they take place in... I think, supposedly different, picturesque New England towns. You know, I think one of the reasons that we get out of Halloween and we head straight into Christmas and we don't pause for Thanksgiving is because there's not all this other popular culture stuff to go with Thanksgiving. We don't have, we don't sit around singing Thanksgiving carols. Bing Crosby never put out a Thanksgiving album, did he? Not that I'm aware of. If, if you know of it, and if you have one, I want it from you. We don't, we don't sit around and watch all of the wonderful claymation Thanksgiving specials. And so we skip over this season. We skip over this opportunity to stop and to give thanks. And more than that, more, more, more than skipping over it, very soon we're all going to be inundated on, on the morning talk shows or in the newspaper or on blog posts online with something along the lines of six tips to survive your family this Thanksgiving. There's not a lot of Thanksgiving and an idea that we have to survive our family. That's not an attitude of thanksgiving. It's not an attitude of contentment, of place. In this day and age, being content with what one has and generous toward others can make someone stand out. 
and yet that's what God calls us to as Christians. Contentment most likely looks different for everyone, but there are key truths in the Bible on this subject which apply to all of us. And to better understand commitment, we're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians, specifically the the fourth chapter, the last chapter of that letter. That's where we're going to be over the next three Sundays. You know, the book of Philippians is often referred to as a book of joy, as a letter of joy. It uses the word joy five times, and the word rejoice shows up in Philippians nine times, and yet all of this was written by Paul when he was sitting in a jail cell. In the middle of a jail cell, Paul is able to tell the Philippians to rejoice. So we're going to be in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to start with the fourth verse this morning. If you have a um, copy of Scripture with you, I'd encourage you to turn. If not, grab one of those black hardback Bibles in front of you. If you need a copy of God's Word to take home with you, to be yours, I encourage you to take one of those pew Bibles as our gift to you. Philippians chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any moral excellence, if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we, as we spend time this morning in the study of your word, I pray that you would, would grant us contentment, that you would satisfy our souls, that we would find joy in you. And God, as we open your word and as we study it and as we let it shape us and form us, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. I may be seated. Do you, uh, do you like surprises? Some of you do. I, I'm, I'm not a terribly big fan of them myself. Um, I just uh, I don't particularly care for them. Um, but a lot, a lot of people like surprises, and it's a word that's, that's universally understood, but people's experience with surprise can be very different. There are good surprises, and there are bad surprises. For example, surprise, I'm pregnant, can be a good surprise. It also could be a not-so-good surprise. Surprise, happy birthday, for most people, is probably a nice surprise. For me, it would probably give me a heart attack. Don't ever throw me a surprise party. 
But surprise is, is a word that we understand. It's, a, it's, it's this thing of to be, to be captured by something unawares, unknowingly, to have it show up in our life, and to, well, surprise us. C.S. Lewis entitled his spiritual memoir, Surprised by Joy. See, what happens is, is Lewis finds himself surprised both by his faith in God. C.S. Lewis had been an atheist, and so he's surprised that, that faith even shows up in his life, but then also surprised by the joy that he finds in God. There was a, a private letter that was recently discovered, and he describes the joy found in God in this way. He says, real joy jumps under one's ribs and tickles down one's back and makes one forget meals and keeps one decidedly sleepless at night. The Christian faith is one of joy in the Lord. As I mentioned earlier, this letter, Philippians, is, is that Paul writes as a prisoner to this church at Philippi is a letter that is marked repeatedly by joy. Joy and the ability to rejoice regardless of the circumstances is an attribute of someone who is content. It's also the attribute of a believer in Christ. Lots of studies have been done along these lines, but there was a, a recent study that was done by the Pew Research Fund, done across the world, and it found that believers are happier than non-believers. For example, in, in America, in the United States, 36% of actively religious people describe themselves as very happy. Now, 36% may not sound like a lot, but it's, that's in contrast to non-believers and, and inactive believers of whom only 25% said that they were very happy. So I have to ask, is, is this true of you? Would you, if the phone rang and you picked it up, which you probably wouldn't because you're screening your calls, and I don't blame you because if one more person asks me to renew my car warranty, I'm going to go crazy. But if the phone were to ring and you were to answer it and you were to be asked by a researcher at Pew, are you an active believer? And you were to answer yes, and then they were to say, are you very happy? How would you respond? Now, happiness and contentment are not always the same thing. You can be content and not be happy. There are things that happen in our lives that, that we can be content with, that we can understand, that, but they don't necessarily make us happy. But I do think that this is a, a pretty good link, a pretty good example of the ability that we have to, to rejoice in God, to find joy and to find happiness, and connected to that, experience contentment regardless of our circumstances. Regardless of the fact that Paul was in prison, he writes these words to the church at Philippi, Rejoice in the Lord always. 
And then, to drive the point home, he says, I'm going to say it again. Rejoice. Here you have a man in prison writing to a church that is under the beginnings of persecution. And the word that he writes to them is not, be discontent, fight, fight, fight. No, what he writes to them is he says, rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. I say it again, rejoice. What does he say? He says, he says rejoice, what? In the Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't tie the, the believer's ability to rejoice it's not tied to some worldly thing, to stuff, to some earthly circumstance. He doesn't say, hey man, you've got everything good. Your bank account is flush. Your house is great. You've got all that shiplap up in the kitchen that you wanted to put up. Your dog is wonderful. Your kids are well behaved. You've got an honor roll student. Your wife is attractive, so rejoice. He says rejoice in the Lord. Our joy is found in God, not in our possessions, not in our title, not in our economic status, not in our marriage, not in our relationships, not in our children, not in our parents, not in our football team, not in our basketball team, not in our baseball team, not in our car, not in our job, not in our neighborhood. Can I keep going? You get the point? Our joy is found in God. Because God is eternal. We don't think about that word a lot. Eternal. It means that God had no beginning and God has no end. So you and I, we are not eternal. Now, we will get to spend eternity from this point forward with God if we give ourselves in relationship to Him. But you and I, brothers and sisters, we had a beginning. There was a moment in which we were not. And the next moment, there was a moment when we were. But there was never a moment in which God was not. There was never a moment in which the Father was not, never a moment in which the Son was not, never a moment in which the Holy Spirit was not. God is eternal. He has no beginning, and He will have no end. But your stuff has an end. <laughs> My Apple Watch had an end on the floor of a Jersey Mike's north of Fayetteville. You know, jobs come, jobs go. Accolades come and go. Paychecks come and go. And sometimes paychecks go faster than they come. You know, accomplishments can bring us pleasure, can make us happy, but if we put too much reliance on them, in the end, we'll find ourselves looking for something else to satisfy us. Y'all remember the three circles. We've talked about the three circles. We've, we've used that as a, as a tool to explain the gospel. There's, a, there's this, one of the circles. The second circle is the, the brokenness of the world and experiencing the brokenness. And if you remember, there are all those squiggly lines that come off of it. That's all the stuff that we try and find contentment in. 
But it's only when we rejoice in the Lord that we can experience a level of joy that, as C.S. Lewis said, makes us forget meals and become delightedly sleepless. I can promise you this. I have not lost 25 pounds by forgetting about meals. I've thought about them a lot. And I've experienced some sleepless nights over the last four months. I can't imagine why. But it's not delightedly sleepless. There's not a whole lot of delight when you get punched in the back in the middle of the night. It's your turn. There's also a word here, always. See, this is not a one-and-done thing. Rejoicing in the Lord is a discipline, something that we have to work on and do regularly. To do, always, it must be a habit. I will say, I think that the best place to cultivate this habit is right here, in regular worship in and with God's church. It's not the only place, but I do think it's the best place. And as the discipline of continuous rejoicing in God develops, it is good to challenge yourself to carry it over into the moments of life when rejoicing feels like a challenge. And there are going to be moments when rejoicing feels like a challenge. And I think that's when coming together with the church is so important. Because maybe even for a day, for a moment, for a season, you can't find anything in your life to rejoice in. But there's going to be another beloved brother or sister of Jesus who has joy in their heart. And you will be able to find that joy with them and to rejoice with them. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Graciousness is a part of this call to rejoice. The path to joys includes letting your graciousness be known to everyone. You know, it means not spreading unhappiness to others. Now, I'm not saying don't share the burdens of your life with one another. Absolutely, that's what we're here for. That's what the body of Christ is for. But, but there's a difference between sitting down with a brother or sister in Christ and saying, hey, I've got this issue and I've got this thing and will you help me carry this burden together? There's a difference between that and being mean to the clerk in the grocery store. There's a difference between honest vulnerability with one another and deciding you've had a bad day, so the waitress is going to get a 5% tip because she was 36 seconds late with your water. Being gracious means that we don't use our lives and our ministries to be vindictive and hateful when things aren't going well. Rather, we embrace a good attitude because we know that the Lord is near and He's closer to us than we think. But if we refuse to rejoice and instead complain, we can make the very near God feel very far off indeed. And sometimes when we aren't satisfied, sometimes when we're, when we're not doing that, when we're not when we're not wrapping ourselves in a good attitude because we know that the Lord is near, when we aren't satisfied, we can worry and worry endlessly. 
I, I have a tendency of being a little bit of a, of a worrier. My mother always thought I should go into advanced strategic planning for the military because I can think of every possible bad case scenario that's going to happen. Yes, well, I know that we've countered that Chinese threat, but have we ever wondered about what would happen if Russia trained polar bears to carry nuclear warheads over the North Pole? I was nine, all right. I thought it was a good idea. But here in verse 6, Paul provides an antidote to worry. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. See, prayer is this relational communication with God. It seeks to draw resources from the invisible, spiritual, supernatural realm into this visible, physical, natural reality. Every time we begin to worry, we should see that as a call from God telling us that it's time to pray. See, the more you worry, the less you pray. But I believe that the more you pray, the less you'll worry. Prayer is is this umbrella word, and Paul includes petition with thanksgiving. You know, our petitions must be specific. We need to tell God what we're worried about and to ask for his help. A moment in which you're plagued by worry is not the time for one of those general prayers for God to bless the world. To deal with anxiety and worry, make sure your petitions are precise. Get real with God. But there also must be thanksgiving, a recognition of all that God has already done for us, all that he is doing for us, and all that he will do for us. I'm going to pause here for a second, and I'm going to tell you that I'm really excited about our Advent and Christmas series. It's called The Promise. Um, and we're going to be see, uh, spending um, the month of December, well, the last Sunday in Thanksgiving through uh, Christmas, we're going to be looking at all the ways in which God has fulfilled his promises and how that ultimate fulfillment of his promises is in, is in Christ. I'm going to encourage you to, to stay um, right after the service, and we're going, to have a, we're, going to be, we're going to have a short invite video that we'll eventually be putting up uh, online um, that's going to preview the series and in, invite you to come and participate in that with us. Because, because God gives us promises. And God has not left a promise unfulfilled yet. He's never broken a promise. What we know, what God has done and is doing and will do for us all at once, we know that and pray that even in the light of our petitions that we can find thanksgiving. Prayer can feel frustrating sometimes, right? I know I feel that way. Because sometimes we think of, think of prayer as, as like going to a soda machine and putting your money in and, and hitting the button and nothing comes out. Or worse, you know, the, the, the old snack machines with their little curly cues things, and, you'd, and you'd, you'd, you'd select, you know, your, I don't know, whatever, your candy bar or whatever, and it would spin out, and then it would get stuck. You could see it right there in the glass, and you go to bang on the machine and the hospital security guard tells you not to? See, sometimes we can think of prayer that way. 
But think of it in those terms causes us to miss how prayer works. God wants us to make requests with thanksgiving. Of course, when you have a problem and it isn't going away, giving thanks is not on the top of your priority list, is it? But Paul tells us here to give thanks, not for the problem itself, but for the God that we are inviting into the specific problem. To give thanks not for the problem, but for God's answer to the problem that hasn't shown itself yet, that hasn't manifested itself yet, that hasn't shown up in our lives yet, but will because of God's promise. Offering thanks is a demonstration of faith in God's goodness and provision despite what we see and experience around us. And so what can we expect? When we pray this way, what can we expect? We can expect the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, we can experience calm in the midst of chaos. You will know that God heard your prayer not not because the problem is solved, but because of the peace that God will give you. You know, Paul says that it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Because even we won't be able to entirely understand how we were able to have peace in light of the troubles that we experience. But we'll know that we're experiencing it, that we're feeling it. We have that peace. But even if we can't understand it, we know that it guards our hearts and minds. It's as if God puts soldiers and sentries around our feelings and our thoughts. God gives us peace, but we must hold on to it. We don't want to lose our peace in the next hour or the next day or in the next week. And so Paul tells us to dwell on whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable. To find something where there's moral excellence and if there's anything praiseworthy and to focus our attention there. One of the reasons that we don't keep our peace is because sometimes we tend to dwell on the things that are set in opposition to the peace that we're asking for. We're not dwelling on the true and honorable on the just, on the pure, on the lovely, on the commendable. We're dwelling on the, the falsehoods. We're dwelling on the dishonorable. We're ju- dawdling on the unjust. We're dwelling on the tawdry and seedy. We're, we're dwelling on the, the ugly. We're dwelling on the contemptible. I have some friends who... Man, I hate to say it. They're not happy people. They're they're consumed by anger and discontent and cynicism. But then when I talk to them, then what are they dwelling on? They're not dwelling on the good things in life. In fact, some of them think that the good things in life aren't real. That's all all fake and, and kitsch. They don't, They don't take time to, to think about lovely things. They fill themselves intentionally through their consumption of their media and, and unintentionally through the way they think. They fill themselves with, with ugliness. And then they wonder, 
why they're so miserable. They wonder why life seems like such a burden. See, we can, we can mull over a lie and bad things that can happen. And if we continue to entertain those messages that work against our peace, anxiety is soon going to return. And so we must, therefore, ask ourselves if we're able to praise God for the things that we are dwelling on. And if we can't, if we cannot praise God for the things that we are dwelling on, then maybe we should be dwelling on the things that we can praise God for. Because if we dwell in those other things, we will lose the peace that God has given us. Paul gives us one more step to living in God's peace. He says this in verse 9. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. The Philippians then were, told, were being told to handle things the way they had seen Paul handle them. Well, immediately, how are they seeing Paul handle things? They're seeing a man who is in jail but praising God instead of worrying. See, this is one of the purposes of the church. This is why I think coming together is, is important in this. Because one of the purposes of the church is to connect people with other kingdom-minded people. Because we need support, and we need good examples. And we need those days when things are rough and things are tough to be able to look up and see somebody, not somebody who has it all together, because guess what? None of us have it all together. But to see somebody who at least for today is dwelling in God's peace and not in, not in worry. Because we need somebody to come alongside us and, and pick us up. Because we need to see and to experience the body of Christ. Paul closes with the promise that God's peace will be with you. When we are rejoicing and praying and dwelling on the right things and watching the right people, we don't just have peace with God, we have the God of peace. We get his peace and we get his presence. When we learn how to rejoice in God regularly, it prepares us to be content during the worst of times. I heard a story one time about a, a seminary uh, professor who had a serious and unexpected medical condition which put him in the hospital for a very long time. And not terribly long after he was admitted to the hospital, the hospital chaplain came to visit him and the chaplain asked him how he was doing and he replied, I'm fine. And the chaplain, being a chaplain, knowing that oftentimes I'm fine is just cover for things not being fine, the chaplain says, really? He says, Yes totally fine. Well, is there anything that I can do for you? Yes. Will you praise God with me? The chaplain stared at the professor, dumbfounded, and, and then said, but, but you're in the hospital, and all of the things that you're connected to. And the professor replied, I have the peace of Christ guarding my heart like a powerful enemy. And for that, I want to praise God. This is what it looks like 
to rejoice in God always, how it can bring us contentment, even in a hospital room or in a jail cell or in the midst of a divorce or in the loss of a job. It's why we're able to face those things. Because of Christ. He's everything that he has done for us. You know, I've had a lot of fun this fall. Especially football season. I've rejoiced and I've picked and I've had a good time. But here's the question that I have to ask myself, that you have to ask yourself. Do you, I rejoice more over what Jesus has done for me or that Wake Forest went 8 now. Do I rejoice more over what Jesus has done for me or the fact that the Atlanta Braves won the World Series? Do I rejoice more, or more over what Jesus has done for me or over the fact that the Saints beat Tom Brady again? I think a lot of us, if we were honest, would say that in our lives, sometimes we rejoice more when our team wins or when we get the promotion or when that unexpected gift from the long-lost uncle shows up in the mail, that we rejoice more then than we do on a day-in, day-out basis for what Jesus has done for us as we come to this table. We come to this table to celebrate and to rejoice what Christ has done for us. God gave us this meal to, to, to remind us of what Jesus has done for us. As we come to this table, I'm going to remind you that we had the elements out front, if anyone did not get those, raise your hand and Rod or one of the other deacons will get it to you. Why am I not surprised?